AI.org online. This is a listener-sponsored community radio station providing you a Pacifica state of mind since 1960. And just as the previous program, which happens to be Let's Talk with John Kane and uh, Reagan DeLoggins, uh, that is on Thursday starting at 3 p.m., has mentioned before, we here at WBAI try to do our best to make sure that the narrative that we bring in considering um, during these tumultuous times that we're living in right now will not be based on fear. It will not base, it will not be based on, uh, intimidation or some kind of form of, uh, scare tactics to force people to think the way they think. We strongly believe that whatever information that we provide to the listening, to the listenership out there is for some food for thought and for you to decide whether you agree or disagree with the things that are being presented here. So here at WBAI, we are listeners supported and we're not uh, supported by corporations or entities that may do harm to the radio station or to the listening public as well, too. So if you feel like you want to donate to this radio station at any given time, feel free to call 516-620-3602 or go to give to WBAI.org online or you could text to donate text WBAI on your smartphone to the number 41444. And if you want to send a check or money order to WBAI, well, you can write out the check or money order to WBAI, Pacifica Radio, 388 Atlantic Avenue, third floor, Brooklyn, New York, 11217. With all that said, it is now one minute past 5 p.m. Stay tuned for Driving Forces with Jeff Simmons coming up. Welcome to Driving Forces. I'm your host, Jeff Simmons, and I thank you for tuning in to WBAI today. As you know, given the urgency that we self-isolate and socially distance ourselves as much as possible, your hosts like me, we're doing these shows remotely. So I first want to thank Reggie Johnson for setting me up and making this show possible today. Reggie, thank you so much. No problem. This is what we do here. So Reggie's in the studio making sure that these shows happen as best as possible. We're staying on the air as much as we can, bringing you fresh content like you just heard uh, from Reagan DeLonis and uh, John Kane uh, within the last two hours. And as you heard from Max and Murphy yesterday at 5 p.m., I'll keep striving to bring you our dedicated WBAI listeners new and insightful interviews. As the world changes... And as our new normal changes every day, it just seems apparent that in the months ahead, we're going to witness considerable loss. And I'm not saying that to to frighten you or, or be, to uh, to scare you, but I consider what our elected officials have been saying. And for instance, Mayor de Blasio yesterday said that he expects that fully half of our city's population inevitably is going to test positive for the novel coronavirus by the time this pandemic has run its course. I've not been tested yet. I'm not showing any symptoms. I've been self-isolating and keeping my distance from folks, only stepping outside briefly each day. Uh, a few folks in my orbit, though, have emailed me to tell me they've tested positive, that they have mild symptoms. Uh, and my neighbors actually said that after about a week or two of self-isolation, they're feeling much better right now. Uh, but I will keep returning to you every Thursday at 5 with reports from the front lines and from our elected officials and the experts that you've come to listen to every every Thursday and others who are now out there working to protect us, our health, our finances, and our welfare. So in a short while, I'm going to talk with two of those individuals who've been committed to serve the public for some time, our newest Attorney General, Letitia James, and then a good friend and ally of WBAI, Brooklyn Borough President Derek Adams. And then, because so much might seem dire these days, I want to end today's show with something a bit more uplifting, an interview with Brett Younger, the senior minister at the historic Plymouth Church. 
So before we get to the first guest, I first want to just give you some uh, some brief news. Overnight, the U.S. Senate agreed to an unparalleled $2.2 trillion stimulus deal, and it was expected to go to the House of Representatives today. It might have by the time the show occurred. Uh, but this stimulus package would provide $350 billion for small business loans. That's $250 billion for unemployment aid, which is needed right now, and I'll get to that in a moment, and at least $100 billion for hospitals. And this is the largest economic rescue package in our country's history, more than twice the size of President Obama's economic stimulus package, that 2009, 2009 Recovery Act. Unemployment, mentioned that just a moment ago. This is expected to continue to skyrocket, which is understandable at this time. It was reported that close to 3.3 million Americans have applied for unemployment benefits just in the last week, and that's four times the previous record, which was set back in 1982. Filings for unemployment just aid are just generally you know, uh, reflecting the pace of layoffs, which we've been hearing about in quite a number of sectors. And I'm sure you've heard that revenue is just collapsing at restaurants, hotels, movie theaters, gyms, airlines, um, quite a number of sectors. So a short while ago today, our governor gave the latest statistics on the coronavirus pandemic. Just want to cite a few of them right now. <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, globally, close to getting close to 500,000 cases, 487,000 plus cases now. Uh, where people have tested positive, and more than 22,000 deaths, according to CNN, and that's according to the governor at this point. New York State, <coughs> excuse me, folks. New York State reports more than 37,000 confirmed cases right now, including 385 deaths statewide as of Thursday morning. Many of those, when it comes to this county, many of them are here where I'm based in, uh, in Jackson Heights, Queens, Queens, though, has the highest number of cases, <coughs> excuse me, more than 7,000 total cases right now. That's up by 606 from the day before. 51,000 plus people tested in New York City already. And of that, there are also 21,873 confirmed cases here in New York City. There is a lot going on uh, with this right now. And what we're also hearing about amid all of this, and now we're going to discuss that with the first guest in just a few moments. Uh, we're also seeing quite a number of reports about of racism and xenophobia across our city. Most recently, what was reported, a teenager spit at an Asian man at a Brooklyn subway station, claiming that the victim was spreading the coronavirus. And also what's being reported is that several Chinese restaurants in the East Village are now noting incidents of vandalism, even one of attempted robbery. This is something I've talked about before on the show, uh, including uh, within the last few days with Queensborough President Sharon Lee, the first Asian American appointed to that borough position, uh, where she has also heard a number uh, about a number of these cases. And this is all happening as our president repeatedly refers to this virus, the COVID-19 virus, as the Chinese virus. You can't see, but I'm doing those air quotes right now. But that's what our president keeps saying. So let's just check in. Uh, Reggie, do we have our guest on the line? Uh, Not yet. Still waiting. Okay, okay so that'll happen in just a few moments. So I, it, another topic I'm going to talk with her about, uh, which is of interest, is what we're seeing in a number of establishments that are happening apparently across the state, but also... Uh, but also, okay, here we have City. the first guess. Great, and that's a price gouging. So, we're going to talk to the Attorney General about that as well. So, let's go right to her now. That brings me to New York State Attorney General Letitia James. She's the former New York City public advocate who stepped into this current position only within the last two years. And the AG's office does quite a number of things. It includes protecting consumers and investors, charitable donors, the public health and environment, our civil rights, and the rights of wage earners and businesses across the state. AG Letitia James, thank you for joining me here on BAI. Thank you so much. Let me begin by telling, giving you updated numbers on what is happening throughout the state of New York. Um, as of this moment, there has there's more than 37,769 confirmed cases in New York State. More than 21,873 confirmed cases of coronavirus in New York City. Unfortunately, at least 385 deaths in New York State 
281 deaths in New York City. And in the Office of Attorney General, we've received 2,000 inquiries related to labor inquiries. Those are primarily inquiries related to the executive orders issued by the governor of the state of New York, related to whether or not um, businesses are essential and or positions are essential or not. We've also received more than 2,000 complaints related to price gouging. As you know, um, we announced a task force and a 1-800 number with respect to hate crimes against um, all ethnic groups, but with a particular focus on members of the Asian community, which are being who are being targeted right now. We've received a number of complaints against individuals who've been spat upon, who've been discriminated against, where businesses refuse to serve them, where individuals are shouting epithets and uh, basically say, urging them to put on masks um, because they are responsible for the coronavirus. In addition, we have issued more than 800 price gouging letters, cease and desist letters um, to uh, businesses throughout the state of New York. Um, again, we continue to provide oversight over labor violations as well as discrimination um, uh, allegations as well. We've seen businesses across the state attempting to take advantage of the anxiety of this crisis and basically cheat New Yorkers out of goods that are critical to our health and safety. They are basically bottom feeders. And these actions are not only unethical, but they're unlawful, and they will not be tolerated here in the state of New York. We've seen hand sanitizers being sold for $80 and sometimes even more. Um, we've seen, uh, again, individuals selling toilet paper for exorbitant prices. Uh, we've seen individuals just really taking advantage of the situation. We've also been seeing companies fraudulently marketing bogus medical products like Wayne Allen Root, who's a, um, an advertiser who, on, um, on a platform on his Newsmax TV show. Um, we've also seen Alex Jones marketing and selling toothpaste on his TV show. We've seen Jim Baker sell products through his TV show that he claims would kill the coronavirus. We've seen Dr. Cheryl Sherman sell products on her website. We've seen companies like the Silver Edge um, sell products on their website, um, products such as a nebulizer that they claim beats coronavirus as well. We've seen scanners in upstate New York go door to door pretending to be from uh, the CDC and offering people a COVID-19 test for a fee. We've seen individuals uh, prey upon members of our military claiming that they've got their federal relief money and that they need to provide them with their bank account money. We've seen senior citizens who've been scammed as well, individuals who are seeking their personal information. We've seen individuals fishing on, uh, out on online as well, uh, individuals who are seeking personal information. And we have reached out to a number of these online platforms, um, and we've asked some of them to remove these posts, and they've, com they've complied. But I urge everyone and all of your listeners to reach out to our office and to report these scams to our office um, because they will not be tolerated in the state of New York. We are operating from home um, remotely, but we also have some wonderful, a wonderful team of attorneys and consumer advocates and citizen advocates who are reporting scams to our office and responding to the needs of the residents of New York State. Um, and I thank them so much for all that they are doing during this pandemic and during this heightened anxiety. But I urge everyone to remain calm. This too shall pass. We will get over this together as one New York. So A.G. James, you answered actually some of my questions, but a key one that I'd love for you to tell our listeners about is the hotline. What is the number? What should people know and have at their, you know, at their fingertips so they can tell, you know, your office if they have a complaint? So if they have um, a complaint, what they should do is reach out to our office at 1-800-771-7755. Again, that's a hotline to report medical scams, to report individuals who are engaging in price gouging, to report um, instances where individuals are engaging in discrimination or committing acts of hate against any group of people, which will not be tolerated in the state of New York. It's important that we all stay together. 
um, that we all, again, keep our eyes out and uh, keep our ears and eyes out uh, for all of these bottom feeders who are preying upon the anxiety of New Yorkers. I urge everyone um, to join with me in, uh, again, defending the rights of New Yorkers, but particularly focusing on the most vulnerable and marginalized people in our society, particularly those who are homebound, socially isolated, those who are all alone, those who are just searching for a cure for coronavirus. At this point, for your listeners, there is no cure. There is no treatment. We are working feverishly on trying to get a cure. I want to thank the governor for his leadership in the state of New York. But everyone, again, if you are exhibiting flu-type symptoms, please report to your hospital. But please do not purchase anything online. Um, and please do not believe any of these scammers who are basically just taking advantage of your uh, of your anxiety. The number again, 1-800-771-7755. You also joined 15 other attorneys general in urging President Trump to use the Defense Production Act to respond to the pandemic. What exactly are you calling for? What would this do? So what, what we are seeing not only in the city, but all across the state of New York, um, there is this need for personal protective equipment. And so individuals are having a, we've got um, hospitals, we've got medical professionals who are calling our hotline, urging that we get more equipment to them, more masks, more ventilators, um, more gloves, more swabs. The list goes on and on and on. And so New York cannot do it alone. You've heard from our great governor, you heard from municipalities, heard from the mayor of the city of New York urging in urging the uh, president of the United States to invoke um, the Defense Production Act and right now he's just doing it on a voluntary basis but a voluntary basis unfortunately does not meet the need um, and so it's important that the president of the United States invoke this act so that we can nationalize businesses so that businesses can right now um, uh, basically repurpose manufacturing their manufacturing business and that they could manufacture and produce ventilators and respirators and masks and gloves and swabs and the list goes and even um, just uniforms for some of our um, medical professionals and I'm urging um, that the president join with us I again uh, offered a letter along with other attorney generals across this nation urging that the governor do just that again for any individuals who have questions uh, related to labor issues, related to executive orders, please reach out to our office at 212-416-8700 as well. Um, so the governor has... The governor, oh, the governor has said repeatedly, this isn't a time for partisan politics, uh, especially as he's urged the federal administration to uh, throw more support towards New York. How would you characterize the presidential administration's response to this crisis? You know, I think, you know, there will come a time when we will analyze the performance of the federal government. My role and my response uh, in all of this is to protect um, the rights of New Yorkers and to provide information to all New Yorkers and to clarify some of the executive orders that have been issued by the governor and the mayor of the city of New York and other municipalities all across the state of New York to serve the needs of New Yorkers. I'm not going to get into a partisan fight at this point in time, but I'm, I'm here to serve. I'm here to address the needs right now of individuals who are, who are suffering from anxiety, those who need emergency food, those who are socially isolated, um, and those uh, individuals who are incarcerated who need to be released. Uh, about uh, two hours ago, there was a hearing in the city of New York uh, where um, medically um, uh, uh, individuals who are incarcerated in, in, at, the, at Rikers Island were released. Um, those who were med medically fragile, legal aid, the Legal Aid Society and other advocates brought a habeas corpus uh, basically um, demanding um, that certain inmates be released, and the judge decided to release those who were medically fragile. Um, and uh, there is a similar habeas corpus pending um, against the State Department of Corrections. Um, and as uh, the counsel for the State Department of Corrections, we are trying to come to some sort of resolution again, to have those who are medically fragile released from the Department of Corrections in upstate New York. 
So, Attorney General, we only have a few minutes left. I do want to get to something that you had issued today, which is important. You issued a statement calling on the federal government and states across the country to ensure that this at this time that uh, women's access to safe and legal abortions are not jeopardized as a result of the spread of the coronavirus. What has been your concern? So Texas and Ohio basically has designated abortion clinics in their respective states as non-essential. So they've closed down reproductive centers all across their, their respective states. And as someone who defends the rights not only of New Yorkers, but also defend the rights of individuals, and particularly women in those states. Um, I will defend the right of a woman to choose. She will not be treated like second-class citizens. And it is my position that reproductive rights, and particularly abortion, is an essential service at this point in time, and those clinics should be allowed to remain open. And so I am joining uh, with advocates who have filed a lawsuit um, at this point in time against Texas, uh, right now, there is no regulation in Ohio, so we are focused on Texas, and we will be filing an amicus brief along with other attorney generals across this nation who believe in a woman's right to choose and who believe in the fundamental right, which is enshrined in Roe versus Wade, um, treating women um, and shutting down reproductive clinics and abortion clinics in Texas, in Ohio, or in any other state will be challenged by this attorney general and with other like-minded attorney generals across this nation. And in the final minute, I just want to get very quickly to something that has been on uh, our, my mind, especially, is the upcoming presidential primary. There's been discussion whether this should be moved, uh, kicked down the road to June, you, and a number of states are holding their primaries on June 2nd. Do you think we should be moving New York State's uh, presidential primary? I'm going to defer to the governor of the state of New York. Um, there has been a lot of calls um, for uh, moving the primary. I, I have called for the following, and that is that, that, is that uh, the state legislature and the governor passed a no-excuse absentee ballot. All of us in the state of New York should be mailed an absentee ballot at this point in time so that all of us can vote uh, by absentee ballot. Um, I think it's absolutely critical that all of us um, take um, exercise the most fundamental element of democracy, and that is the right to vote. And it's really critically important that we provide access to all New Yorkers at um, this most challenging time in our history. Um, uh, and um, I'm hoping that the governor and the state legislature will respond in kind. And as I wrap up, you know, at the beginning of this conversation, you uh, uh, gave us a number of statistics. I'm not going to ask you to repeat them, but I tend to, you know, having been a reporter for a number of years where you know, I, I would always put numbers in my stories, but then I'd step back and think, these are people, these are human stories, and there are so many people who are impacted by this. On a very personal level, how has this crisis impacted you, and how have you been holding up during this? I thank you for that. I have an amazing and a wonderful team of um, attorneys and non-attorneys and individuals who go to work each and every day. Right now they're working home, um, they're working remotely from home, and there are some who are still going into the office to answer some of the phone calls and deal with some of the pressing issues. And I thank them from the bottom of my heart. But most importantly, I think it's important that your listeners understand that we are here to serve. Right now our focus is on the coronavirus, but we are also focusing on defending the rule of law each and every day. We are holding up. I am holding up. We are doing teleconferences, reaching out to all different segments of our community, leaving no one out ensuring that all voices are heard. Um, I, I know that we will get past this, and I will not allow um, uh, this pandemic um, to paralyze me and or the operations of the Office of Attorney General. We will continue to serve. We will continue to stand up for New York, and we will pr pr continue um, to provide a calm and reasoned approach during these challenging times. Um, this, too, shall pass. We will get past this. We are one New York. Um, in New York, um, please hang in there. Everything was going to be okay. Attorney General Letitia James, thank you so much for joining me here on WBAI today. I appreciate you, and I appreciate your listeners. I'll talk to you thank soon. Thank you. So before we get to our next guest, I do want to repeat the hotline number that the Attorney General had cited uh, um, <clears throat> in case you're a victim or you witness a coronavirus hate crime or bias incident. The number... 
1-800-771-7755. There's also an email address, civil, C-I-V-I-L, dot rights, that's plural, R-I-G-H-T-S, at ag.ny.gov. Again, that's civil.rights at ag.ny.gov. Uh, it was great to have the Attorney General on. You know, she's also issued proposals uh, to vote by absentee ballot, for instance, uh, on April 28th at this point. She's called on Governor Cuomo to sign an executive order that would allow the State Board of Elections to send all registered primary voters absentee ballots that they can fill out and send back by mail. Because currently, voters have to meet certain criteria to be even eligible for an absentee ballot, such as, you know, a scheduled trip outside of New York, which they're saying we shouldn't do right now, or a temporary or permanent disability. Uh, so we're going to keep monitoring that. Let me check in with Reggie to see if our next guest is on the line. Yes, he is. Great. Thanks so much, Reggie. So let me get over here. Our next guest, Brooklyn Borough President Eric Adams, former New York State Senator and co-founder of 100 Blacks in Law Enforcement, who care and a longtime champion of WBAI. And if you don't recall, he was one of the first people out there, stood with us, us on the steps of City Hall when BAI's programming had been uh, suspended for some time. And I want to thank him again for that. Borough President, welcome back to WBAI. Thank you very much. And, you know, we all know what WBAI means to all of us who like to believe that we are those that move this mission and conversation um, forward. Long before the term disruptor and disruptive was around, there were folks out there disrupting things and making things act right. WBAI was the home for all of us. So thank you for that. So I've been, you know, following your tweets and I've been uh, seeing some of the news coverage. You were out there uh, assisting people and handing out needed supplies to first responders. Can you first talk a little about what your office has been doing and what you have been hearing and seeing over the last few days? Well, the I'm really concerned because my view of this is probably different from a lot of people in and out of government. Uh, because I recall uh, 9-11 so vividly, standing on uh, the toxic pile, watching years later as close friends and colleagues either died or are living with conditions because we mishandled uh, the effects of that toxic chemical mix that came from 9-11. And I feel like it's, it's almost deja vu. We should have learned for those le- from those lessons. The difference between then and now is that the impact of September 11 and those fumes that came from the site impacted just the individuals directly. And, of course, the loss of life impacted them indirectly. But coronavirus is going to impact people directly and indirectly. I have a loved one, a good friend, whose son is in the hospital on a respirator uh, because uh, he couldn't. He uh, contacted coronavirus through her, and that is going to happen. So why do I raise that? It's because we have to fight this battle on two fronts, not one front. The first front is actually the hospitals. Make sure the nurses, the doctors, the orderlies, the hospital staff, that they receive uh, PPE, personal protection equipment. But then we have to fight it on the front of those that we classify as uh people who have to be at their jobs, firefighters, police officers, grocery store personnel, school crossing guards, because if we don't give them personal protection equipment, they're going to become a feeder for the hospitals now and later. And when I'm on the ground and people are wondering why am I handing out a mask that, uh, you know, the hospital needs the N95, we're handing out the mask. Uh, the surgical masks are different types because all the N95s should go to the hospital personnel. But think about NYCHA. The people who are impacted the most, that's why, that's why I'm on NYCHA's ground. They are over 60, uh, pre-existing conditions, as uh, respiratory issues. That is the definition of the NYCHA tenant. And if no one is there preventing them when they go shopping, uh, when they go for their walks, when they interact, if we're not really explaining to them the impact of this virus and how to, um, you know, cover a cough into your, uh, your, your, your arms and your sleeves 
All of these things must be done to prevent the feeder of the emergency rooms that we're seeing. And that's why we're doing this, and that's what this is, this is all about. And that's why I'm on the ground, because I'm, I am an essential employee. Some people think the essential employees are only the doctors and nurses and the police officers. No, it's those of us who have a role to prevent the virus from coming coming place. How do I love telling the cop to go out and patrol, telling the EMS, EMS employee to go out, telling the nurse to go out? And here I am, an elected official. I'm supposed to stay home and tell her, communicate? That's not making sense to me. That is not how a general leads. A general leads from the front. And on the ground, our people on the front need the help from us, and that's what I'm doing. And my staff, although they are off-site, they are managing the movement of the few of us that are on the ground. So you you talk about members of the NYPD, and I want to just get to the NYPD's role in enforcing social distancing in parks, because I'm sure you, like most of us, heard the governor calling out people who are congregating at parks, including Prospect Park, this past weekend. If it was up to you, would you have officers handing out fines at this time to those people? Uh, no, no, no. And I'm glad you, you asked that, because that's a very important question that you just presented. And follow me for a moment on this answer. We have to communicate with people where they are, not where we are, but where they are, and then take them to where we want them to be. Everyone does not start their day running to the corner cafe and getting the New York Times. Everyone is not sitting down listening to the governor um, do, doing his briefing, the mayor doing his briefing, etc. So everyone, I was in Canarsie and some young people were playing basketball, and I went over to them and said, listen, you're supposed to be just doing social distancing. They said, what the hell is that? So what about my Korean population that don't speak English at all? What about the Hasidic community where you're seeing a rash of upticks in coronavirus? They don't watch TV. They don't read newspapers unless it's in uh, their language. Uh, so all of these different groups, we're in this echo chamber, and they think that everyone understands what we're saying and what we're supposed to be doing. And I say, let's start communicating with people where they are. Let's talk to those rabbis so they can speak to uh, their congregants. Let's go into these Korean ethnic newspapers. Let's engage in people one-on-one. So we should not have the police writing summonses, enforcement. We should do a light touch. Communication is the key. And communication is not merely because I said something. It's because when I say something, someone heard it, and they understood how I wanted them to interpret that. And so right now we have the stage. I was, I was out in Williamsburg and, and Greenpoint walking through McCarran Park, speaking with people and thanking them who were socially distancing themselves. I was thanking them. Thank you for um, doing this. We want to keep the parks open. This is a good way to do it. Those who weren't, I was letting them know that, listen, we, we want to practice social distancing. You know, so people are trying and they're trying to cooperate, but we have to do a better job at communicating also. And the police should be the last resort. We are not at the place of finding people incarcerating people, unless you go into establishments like bars and restaurants and they are not following the rules because they have to fall under the state liquor authority. And they should know better because the, the, the message was sent out to all of these establishments when they have to close, if they could be open at all, and people need to comply with that. So you're listening to WBAI 99.5 FM's Driving Forces, streaming live at WBAI.org. I'm your host, Jeff Simmons, and I'm joined right now by Brooklyn Borough President Eric Adams. So you also had some strong words this past over the past few days about the temporary hospitals that were set up uh, at Javits. Your concern was that there were not any being targeted at that point for Brooklyn. Has that changed? Have you gotten any, re any traction on that? We had a great conversation today with uh, the mayor, the governor's uh, person uh, 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 was in an excellent talk, and they realized if New York City has become the epicenter of the coronavirus for America, then Brooklyn and Queens is that epicenter here in this city. The largest number of cases are in these two boroughs, Brooklyn and Queens. Manhattan has always received a number of hospital beds. Manhattan has always had the best reimbursement rates. We've always treated Manhattan as the elite place around medicine, but the reality is this is not only a health crisis, but it's a social crisis. So we need to ensure those areas 
that are dealing with some serious social determinants of health, they're going to be the highest level of people who are impacted by coronavirus. Let's look at the numbers. The numbers in Brooklyn, the numbers in Manhattan. So we have to have hospital beds for the spillover and the over-taxation of our emergency rooms. We need to get the supplies where the crisis is, not where the popularity is. I think the governor has heard our call. They're going to be five new locations in the city. One of them that I have called for some time, a, a great space in the cruise terminal. This cruise terminal is not being used currently because cruises have are basically on a hiatus because of this issue. Let's use this huge space right off the waterfront. We could use the water taxis. We can use the ferries. We can move people to and from. It's in the downtown Brooklyn area. And this is a smart decision. And of my understanding, the Army Corps of Engineers stated we could, we're going to do five more locations. And that is one of the locations the governor is considering. And I say that's, that's the right thing to do. And we need to do it in the other boroughs as well. So just a short while ago, uh, one of my favorite people, and I'm smirking when I say that, Kellyanne Conway seemed to blame Bill de Blasio for allowing the coronavirus to spread here in New York. How would you characterize how the mayor has handled this? You know, the mayor has taken a lot of hits and a lot of criticism. Uh, and, and, I, and I think uh, some, of it, some of it is fairly so, but over, the overwhelming parts of it is it's not fair. Uh, this crisis is dropped in his lap, we are not getting the support from the federal government. The mayor was extremely clear uh, what the federal government should have been doing uh, and was not receiving that uh, level of support. And he is attempting to navigate a one of the most important cities in America. And many much of his decisions that he would have called for, the governor had the final say. And we need to, we need, we need to understand that. And I think that you know, all of us, when we stub our toe, we look for someone else to blame. The reality is uh, this is a difficult job to do right now. And I think the mayor, on many accounts, has operated within the restraints of the city of this size and with the level of complexity of New York. We can never forget the complexity of the city. This is not China where you can say shut everything down and everyone is going to comply. We personify I want to do what I want to do. And half would say, turn the police loose and uh, allow them to shut down everything. And another half would say, um, how dare you even think about doing that? So finding the delicate balance of being the chief executive of the city is something he had to do. My only criticism is that we have to, we have to purchase uh, PPEs and, and get them to the people on the ground uh, quickly, and that, that is not only hospital personnel, it is every man and woman who is considered uh, to be an essential employee. They must get those resources, and we're 14 days in, if not more, uh, it's taking too long to get those resources on the ground. So, Burr President, we just have about two, three minutes left. And, you know, I talked to Tish James as well about this, about how this, you know, is affecting her on a personal level. And I'm curious, you know, uh, when you hear about the rate of infection and you hear about the death rate and here in, in where I'm from in Jackson Heights, I'm bordering Elmhurst near Elmhurst Hospital, where they had 13 deaths within a 24 hour period. They're saying that a number of those who passed away uh, were elderly and had pre-existing conditions. Now, I, like you, I'm in my 50s. I'm in my mid-50s. You're just a little older than me. And I know, uh, you know you've know, you also been very public about being diagnosed with type 2 diabetes uh, about four years ago. How is this personally affecting you, and how is it changing how you go about your day? It, 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 you know, a, a death is a part of life more than life is. And it is something that you grow accustomed to. Uh, but in the last few days, I lost five people. And it really hurt. Today, I learned um, one of those losses took place today. Uh, a good friend was in his apartment for two weeks. And I was just by his house uh, when his family members uh, were there. And his body, of course, decomposed. And it was just, you know, a reality. And when I spoke with him a little over two weeks ago, he said, Eric, I'm going to stay home because of this virus situation and I'm not feeling well. And 
and I checked in on him. I didn't hear from, from him, so I asked the police to go and do a wellness check. And I learned a couple hours ago that he transitioned. And the number of cases, you know, we had a great school principal. Uh, her, her death came because coronavirus, a young lady. Uh, so this is not a virus that only hits the elderly. And when you start adding up the deaths, start adding up the number of people. It's no longer professional. It's personal. And it hurts a lot. Um, and, and it's out of that pain that we have to find purpose and save the lives of as many people as possible. And anytime people think uh, that this is just a drill, uh, they need to start doing a real assessment of the number of people that we're losing in this city and we could continue to lose. This is at the beginning of this virus. It's a long way to go. And I'm committed to do whatever I could possibly do save as many lives as possible. And on that note, Borough President Eric Adams, I want to thank you for joining me here on WBAI today. Thank you very much. Take care. So finally, with all this despair and fear that exists in the world right now, I did want to bring you something a bit more uplifting. Our faiths are a communal experience and often many of us gather together to break bread in confined spaces, but many of these experiences now are being suspended and the coronavirus is incredibly threatening not just to us physically, but mentally and also spiritually. So I reached out to the Reverend Brett Younger, Senior Minister at the Historic Plymouth Church in Brooklyn, who had joined me in the BAI studios once before and just caused the phone lines to light up. So we talked about how this is one of those moments when many people feel they're not in control. And I asked him about how people can cope with isolation. So here's my interview with Reverend Younger. Reverend Younger, thank you so much for joining me here on WBAI today. Can you first tell our listeners about Plymouth Church? Plymouth Church is a delightful, thoughtful church uh, located in Brooklyn Heights. We have a storied history and an amazing group of people. We uh, take worship and social justice seriously. We're a good family, and I've missed seeing them the last two weeks. Now, is Plymouth closed indefinitely due to the coronavirus pandemic? And if so, why was it important to close the church? Okay, Jeff, you're going to you're gonna get the same answer from every minister on this one. They're all going to want to say, the building is closed, but the church is not. Uh, it, it's important to close the building because we need to encourage everybody to uh, take this pandemic seriously, and the church needs to do what's best for their neighbors. We are, however, continuing to be the church and act like the church, and we're connecting and serving in a variety of ways. And in fact, that was my next question. How has Plymouth Church adapted to the pandemic in terms of programming and services that you're offering? And how are you staying connected as a congregation? Uh, yeah, a couple of things. One, uh, like like most churches, we're worshiping online. Um, we, we would have had about uh, 250 people in the sanctuary on a good Sunday, Sunday. And last Sunday, our worship service was shared on 190 computers. Uh, I wasn't sure people would worship if there was no one there to see them, but our people showed up in their homes in front of their laptops. I assume they recognize the importance of praying and singing and listening uh, for God in a difficult time. And then the, the other part of your question, the connected question, we had uh, three members of our church who decided that we needed a system uh, to be checking in on each other. And those uh, three have grown to 24 volunteers. They started out uh, calling uh, older members of the congregation, and they said, well, we need to check in with young parents. And then they decided to call everyone who lived alone, and now they're just calling everyone. And so some people who may feel more connected than they did a month ago. Um, there are lots of Zoom chats going on. Uh, we have youth groups, two, two of them, writers groups, book groups, artist groups. Uh, my wife, Carol, is reading is leading uh, three chats a week from our dining room table. So we're, we're staying connected. What is your advice for people on how they can cope with this unprecedented uncertainty brought about by the pandemic? I think probably start looking for hope in the small things. Uh, some people are working more hours than ever, but there are a lot of people in New York in particular who have some extra time. Some people who have longed to slow down uh, now have no choice. 
some people who have not gotten the recommended eight hours of sleep in a long time may have that opportunity. Uh, if you look at Facebook, some people are doing some pretty fancy baking out there. Uh, there are parents who wanted more time with their children who, who now have it. And I think a, a second step is to look for the people who are helping and, and be grateful for them first and then find ways to be one of them. We have a woman in our church who's been working hard to get money to Greenpoint Hunger Ministry here in Brooklyn. Uh, our congregations helped them in the past, but getting food to the hungry seems even more urgent. And then, you know, you call someone you're worried about and you FaceTime family members and you give some money away. And then you and then you try to be still, pray and maybe be grateful for things you used to take for granted. And at these times, people have a need for community. So how can you help them with, you know, to combat isolation? My parents are in their 80s and they live in a small town in Mississippi and they live what I think of as a very isolated life. I called them about an hour ago, and the conversation ended with my father um, saying, you know, uh, it's fine if you want to check in, but you need to know that we're on the phone all day long now. <laughs> People from all over, uh, all through their past are, are checking in with them. Uh, some people are getting more phone calls than they used to. Uh, I've gotten calls from old friends from from my past and from all over the country. I think Rather than sit and wish someone would reach out to you, ask who would appreciate a call from me. If, if we are in isolation, many of us have the opportunity uh, to reach out and care for others out of that isolation. And you had a very nice column in AM New York uh, in which you had said this is one of those moments when you realize you are not in control. That is something I think that's going through a lot of people's minds. How do you comfort them? I think first, first recognize that for most of us um, in, in, in first world countries, we have this luxury of thinking that we are in control of our lives. And throughout history uh, and throughout the world today, most people don't have that illusion. Uh, during a tragedy, we figure out not everything's going to go the way we want and, and we're not in charge. We experience that in our personal lives when uh, somebody we care about dies or our, our family falls apart or the the doctor says it's cancer, and this is an opportunity to understand, like the rest of the world does, that bad things will happen to the people we love, and bad things will happen to us. Um, as a as a Christian, I, I don't I don't believe we're immune to the bad things, but I believe that God is with us when those things happen. And if we believe that God holds us forever, then the difficulties are not eternal. Saint Augustine has that great line. Our hearts are restless until they find rest in God. So I am uh, trying to and encourage others to see this as a time to learn to do that, to say a prayer and let some anxieties go and give myself to God's care and rest in God's love. That I'm sorry, that sounded like a preacher. I apologize. <laughs> At the same time, in, the, in that article you had mentioned, it is an opportunity for people to become better people through this experience. Can you elaborate on that? Um, Harry Emerson Fosdick, the, who was the pastor of Riverside in Manhattan during World War II, had this great line I'm trying to get into Sunday's sermon. The highest use of a shaken time is to discover the, un the unshakable. Uh, the highest use of a shaken time is to discover the unshakable. So we're looking for the unshakable right now. I've, I've been afraid this week, but I've also had moments when I've felt hope. So during a crisis, we can become more like the people we hope to be. We can be better for each other uh, as we go through the worst. Uh, if, if those who went through 9-11 know there was a moment where many of us were kinder to one another after that tragedy. Suffering can lead us to be more loving. And many congregations right now are still trying to work very hard to stay connected. This month, Plymouth Church began live streaming uh, your worship service for the first time in your 173-year history. What did it take to accomplish that? Yeah, One of the small gifts during a terrible crisis is that a lot of churches, including mine, are being forced into technology that's long overdue. Um, I, I, I think um, 
theologically, we're going to end up asking big questions about what's most important, what's worth our time, um, what's, you know, what's worth our attention during a hard time. So, again, I think a lot of churches are, are actually going to catch up because this has been forced upon us. And how is your office operating during the crisis? Has, have things been going smoothly? I really like our church staff. It's, it's been going remarkably well. Uh, yesterday we had a staff meeting with uh, five people in the room, six feet apart, and, and two people on a Zoom call, and, and they are rising to the occasion. Um, they, they are Almost all of them are younger than I am, and so they are, are fleet of foot and, and ready to make good things happen. And, you know, Easter is on many people's minds. Easter's coming up uh, shortly. What are Plymouth Church's plans for Easter? Uh, we plan to have about six people in our 2,000-seat sanctuary on Easter Sunday uh, leading online worship. We'll talk about resurrection and the time of despair, uh, what hope feels like, looks like during a hard time. We'll, we'll talk about love that's that's been to the cross, that's, that's been through suffering. I, I was thinking about this morning, I was, I was walking around our sanctuary and walked past the plaques listing those who died in World War One and Two. You know, so my church, like, like other churches, we celebrated Easter during the Civil War. We had a service on the night of 9-11. Uh, the church has been through hard times before. How can people learn more about Plymouth Church if they want to get involved, if they want to be able to see the sermon? Well, I used to say just come and visit, but that, that won't work for a while. Um, our website is PlymouthChurch.org, and you can you can join us online for worship, and that'd be wonderful. Reverend Brett Younger, thank you so much for joining me here on WBAI today. Thank you. I, I, I always enjoy talking with you, Jeff. Thanks. So that was Reverend Minister Dr. Brett Younger of Plymouth Church in Brooklyn. Uh, as I get ready to wrap up the show, just a few other uh, news elements. Uh, the time, New York Times is reporting now that the United States has more known cases than any other country. And still, uh, what are they saying? 81,321 people in the U.S. Uh, have been known to be infected with the coronavirus at this time. Other breaking news not maybe not related to coronavirus they're not saying that his death was attributed to this but for those of us like me who grew up watching the harlem globe trotters uh the legend fred curly neal has passed away in houston at the age of 77 the team just announced that late this afternoon they're not saying what the cause of death is at this time so i want to thank you again for tuning in to wbai i, I appreciate it for those of you who've stuck with us and also I, I thank you for forgiving me for the sound quality as i get used to learning all this tech and that's why i want to again thank reggie our wonderful engineer who's been getting me up to speed on all of this uh but if you are a uh a BAI listener and you do have some time, I just want to remind you that we're staying on the air as long as possible and we could use your contributions. It would help us to continue to, to stay on the air. And there are different ways you can do this, but one is by going to our call center at 516-620-3602. You also can uh, text to WBAI at 41444. But one of the easiest ways is just to go online to give to, that's the number two, WBAI.org. Become a BAI buddy like me. I give $10 a month. I'm not going to stop that. I want it to come right on to my credit card. And it, it just sustains the station. And for many of you who have become BAI buddies, I want to thank you uh, for tuning in here, for listening to John Kane, to Max and Murphy, to staying with us through the news and of course Sundays with Marisol just wonderful every afternoon on set on Sundays so let me again thank today's guests New York State Attorney General Letitia James uh, Brooklyn Borough President Eric Adams and the Reverend Dr. Brett Younger of Plymouth Church tune in this Sunday at six o'clock on WBAI my co-host of City Watch David Brand he'll be solo hosting and he's going to bring you several interviews including with a nonprofit project renewal, but also with Tiffany Caban, the progressive former candidate for district attorney in Queens. She'll talk about what she's been up to recently. If you have missed any part of the show, 
go online to WBAI.org, go to programs, and then to archives. In about 10 or so minutes, that show will be up for you. Again, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you, Reggie, for making this go fluidly. My thoughts are with all of you. I wish you good health in the coming days and weeks. Have a good evening. and staff members. On March 11, 2020, the WBAI Local Station Board passed a motion regarding the composition of the Ad Hoc Program Director Search Subcommittee. This subcommittee is charged with creating a pool of candidates from which WBAI's permanent program director will be hired. This subcommittee is open to non-LSB staff and non-LSB listener applicants. The LSB will elect one of each to serve on the subcommittee at an upcoming meeting. If you'd like to have a role in selecting WBAI's next program director and wish to be considered for election to this committee, please go to WBAI.org, fill out the application form, then email it no later than April 1st, 2020. Thank you. WBAI accepts snowmobiles. If you have a snowmobile, we want it. We also want any extra cars, trucks, SUVs, RVs, boats, and more. Any reason is a good reason to give a vehicle to WBAI. Some do it to avoid the hassles of selling. Some like to skip the costs of repairing, while others just enjoy the good feelings of giving back to their community. But no matter your reason, donating a vehicle to WBAI is a great idea. And it's easy. Here's how it works. Simply call 866-WBAI-CAR. That's 866-922-4227. Or give online at wbai.org slash donate your car. Our vehicle donor support team will arrange your free pickup. When the driver arrives to tow away your great gift, you'll receive a donation receipt. Vehicle donations have the potential to drive hundreds and sometimes even thousands of dollars to WBAI. Call 866-WBAI-CAR or visit WBAI.org slash donate your car. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. You ain't heard nothing yet. Hi, this is Virginia White from Earth, Wind, and Fire, and you're listening to The Sweet Spot on WBAI. Hi, this is Ruth Pointer of the Pointer Sisters, and you're listening to The Sweet Spot on WBAI 99.5 FM. It's the incredible Mr. Roy Ayers. Hello. Hello, everybody. <laughs> Tune in to The Sweet Spot with Baby K and DJ Kyle McNeil. Tell them what we do, Kyle. Every Thursday at 10 p.m., we will be featuring some of the best and soulful sounds with in-depth interviews with your favorite artists, special theme shows, and, you know, guest hosts. Yeah, it's a pretty good time, ain't it? Yep, because we're the sweet spot. Thursdays, 10 p.m. only on WBAI 99.5 FM, streaming online at WBAI.org. Listener-sponsored community radio. Some words that matter to all of us at WBAI. Listener supported, commercial free, resistance radio. Hi, my name is Catherine. I'm host of Heart of Mind. Please take a minute to consider what your radio landscape would look like without this station. At WBAI, we consider you a part of our vital community, a vital cog in our radio wheel. At WBAI, we keep it grassroots. We're powered by your generosity, not corporate interests. Remember to donate by visiting give to WBAI.org or pledge right now from your smartphone by texting WBAI to 41444. We thank you in advance. Opportunities they need to be distributed to people who have been systematically sidelined. Dr. Malvo spoke at the Newark Town Hall on gentrification in April. It is inexcusable for this wealth gap to exist as hard as black people work. And don't let anybody ever tell you that we don't work hard. We must look at the ways that we have to resist. We have black mayors who do not have the sensibility of a Ras Baraka. 
They never met a developer that they don't want to slow dance with. To our detriment, we have black city council people taking money under the table so that they can exploit our people. We cannot have that. Financial literacy is not public policy. We must be responsible stewards of that which we've been blessed with. We must save and invest. But if we save and invest in everything we got, we couldn't close the wealth gap. So understand that when people say, you say economic development, they say financial literacy, say no. Say we will be literate, but we also want our share. Reparations now. Oh, oh. This is listener-sponsored WBAI New York. This is listener-sponsored community radio.